And when we all get to heaven, amen. See Jesus. Can't wait to that day. 1 Corinthians 10. Tonight we're going to continue our series on idolatry. This week and next week at least. 1 Corinthians 10. Let me read the first 14 verses. First Corinthians 8 through 11 is a chapters on idolatry and idols, especially in particular food that's been offered to them, should the Christians in Corinth eat them. The dilemma was it was a dangerous thing for weaker brother Christians who brought up in a Gentile uh, pagan world, saved out of idolatry and actually worshipped in these false pagan temples and worshipped the idols that the Christians were buying their meat from that had been sacrificed in those temples and then sold later on. Weaker brothers and Christians that had struggled because that was their background, watching stronger, mature Christians who could understand that, and they knew that, that idols were nothing, that there was only one true living God. Read it for yourself in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. They knew that there was one God, so it wasn't a problem for them. They knew it wasn't anything Idols were nothing and the meat was fine. So they could, but the danger was they were using their liberty and they weren't being careful about their weaker brother. And some of them might slip back into that idolatry because they misunderstood what the mature brothers and Christians in Christ were doing. And then he's going to tell us about the danger for stronger brethren that even though you're mature and think you are growing in Christ and you have all this knowledge that you're still susceptible and not immune to the pulls of idolatry. We're going to look at those things. In fact, in our text, as I read it, you'll notice there's a little bracket about idolatry. 10.7 says, don't become idolaters. And then at the end of our passage, in verse 14, it says, flee idolatry. This, is a, this whole passage is about idolatry because it is in the middle of a section about idols and the problems that they cause in the lives of Christians and Christian churches. So with that in mind, Let's read the text, 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, and the word means ignorant. And I can tell you why that's important is because they thought they had all this knowledge, and they did. 1 Corinthians 1, 5 said they had all this vast knowledge. I mean, it was a spiritual gift they had. They knew the Bible. They knew what God, they had all this. It was even a supernatural knowledge of these things, right? So they had all this great, great knowledge going for them, but the knowledge wasn't helping them as far as vertically or horizontally. So it's a little bit of a dig, can I say it? I'll show you even more about that in a minute. But he's saying, don't be ignorant. In other words, that'd be the last thing in their mind they thought they were, is ignorant. They thought they had all the knowledge they needed to be all the Christian they should be. And they truthfully did, but the knowledge wasn't making a difference because, as this section says, knowledge puffs up. And it had made them arrogant. He says, I want, don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, lacking knowledge, that all our fathers, which is an amazing thing to say when he tells all the Old Testament stories about Jewish people to an audience in Corinth that was primary Gentile. But in Jesus Christ, we're all one. So our fathers, our ancestors, all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized in the Moses and the cloud and the sea, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. 
Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters. Some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That was the golden calf. We must not indulge, it says, in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. These last three stories are from the book of Numbers. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer, an angel that God assigns to bring judgment and actually through death. Now these things happen to them as an example, a tupoi, a, a mold, a pattern for us to learn from. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And then the famous part we all know. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation or test has taken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tested or tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. Definite article, not a way of escape, the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Chapter 9, at the very end, leads into, because chapter 10, verse 1, the very first word is what? For. So it's building on an argument that's already been started. And the argument is that Paul is telling them from his own personal experience that if you're going to fight idolatry and finish the race of Christianity and validate the point that your faith is real... You're going to have to run. And he uses an Olympic illustration. It wasn't the Olympic Games that was bigger than the local Corinthian Games were very big as well. They were called the Isthmian Games, and they were only second to the Olympians. And they were very important. And in those days, they ran, and they ran, and they worked out just like people did today. For years, they would work out for these races. And there were medals at the end, not medals like gold medals like we get. They had crowns. Their crown, he says, was a laurel wreath put on your head. It was important because it's the same sort of crown that Caesar wore. And so you're getting a high praise and authority. And for them, that was everything, that they did all of this to get the glory and praise of Caesar and all the people in the empire. But Paul says that's not the case with us. We do it for an incorruptible crown. It's the Greek word stephanos, martyrs. We get it because we're going to get it rewarded by being in heaven with God forever. But here's the key. Listen to what he says. 924. See what I told you the phrase is? Do you not know? That is like Jesus telling the religious leaders, Pharisees, scribes, this phrase. Have you not read? It's an insult. It, the Pharisee would say, have I not read? I've memorized most of the Old Testament, not just read it. These are people who said they were experts in the law. And when Jesus says to them, do you, have you never read? In other words, you read it all, but you don't get it. And here's what he says, do you not know? In fact, this, this book is so inundated with that phrase, it's used 10 times, all the way from chapter 3 to the very last use of it in the passage I'm reading to you. And 10 times he asked them a culture and a church that was based on their wonderful understanding and knowledge of God's revelation. They thought they all had it down. And Paul says, then why do you have immorality in your church? And I'm not even going to read it, even though it's in the Bible, because it isn't a very nice thing to say in mixed company. That's how bad it was there and how they treated each other to the point where they were so abusing the Lord's Supper that God had judged some of them by killing them. Imagine that. So-and-so, we had to report at church at Faith Baptist. By the way, they're in, we had a funeral this week because uh, they, did, they abused the Lord's Supper. We all go, what? 
But that's the case. That was the case. That's, they had all this knowledge. All of these, there was not one spiritual gift that the church at Corinth didn't have. They had them all, especially knowledge. And Paul says, do you not know that in a race, the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. In other words, run this way. It's not enough just to be in the race. Can I get you to listen tonight? Because it matters how you run. How much does it matter? Watch the verse. They do it to receive, I'm sorry, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath on their head. But we, an imperishable. So Paul says this, ready? Because I know what's at stake, whether I get a crown or not, I do not run aimlessly. I'm not just out there jogging to have fun. This isn't some pointless maneuver. I do not box as one that beats the air. This isn't just practice. Boxing, he says. But I discipline my body and literally in the Greek, it keep it under control. It literally means to make my body my slave. In other words, Paul says, my body doesn't tell me what to do. I tell it what to do. That's how important it is to an athlete, right? It was also to the spiritual life of Paul. He says, lest, here's the danger, in preaching to others, this is the big kicker, Eddie, I myself should be disqualified. I wrote in my notes the danger of disqualification. Let me show you how the word disqualified is used. It was used to describe a counterfeit coin, that it looked like it was real, but it wasn't. In my office, if you want to see it, I'll show you sometime. I've used it before. I didn't bring it tonight because of that reason. I have a guy in my church when I was a youth pastor in South St. Paul. He worked at a bank. He was very high up, and he said, he pulled me aside one day after church and gave me these Dollar bills. There were four of them. They were on a still sheet. There were four of them, but they'd never been cut apart. He says, we got this off of people that were counterfeiting and ran this off and made them themselves. And we busted them. The police busted them, and we went and got And so I have four $1 bills that are not real, but you could never look at them and tell the difference. But they're still on one big piece of paper. They haven't been cut yet. And he said, I said, well, how do you tell the difference? Because I'm looking at it, and I don't know that much about the, the dollar bill, but he said, he goes, we don't look at the fakes. We look at the real stuff. So when you know the real stuff, you can spot the fake stuff a mile away, he said. This word disqualified means it talks about coins that look like they're real, but they're not. It was also used to describe a soldier who had failed in battle. He really wasn't a soldier. He pretended to one, and only when the battle came up and he ran for his life instead of fighting for his country did you realize that he wasn't real. Used to describe a candidate that had lived such a life that even in that day when he tried to run for an elected office, they were rejected and he couldn't qualify to run. The last one was used of a stone that was supposed to be used in a building project, but because it wasn't good enough or it wasn't the right kind of material, they would put a big A on the stone, and that's the Greek word for disqualified, edakimazo, and you put the A on it, meaning don't use this because it's not good enough. It's not qualified. It's disqualified. Don't use it because it isn't the one we want. Second Corinthians, please, and hold your finger here, 13. Second epistle to the same people. Paul wants to tell us a little bit further about what this means. 
He says in 13.5, 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? He says, listen, you ought to live like it. Don't you realize Jesus is in you? Because if you did, you probably wouldn't do half the things you're doing. Listen, he says, unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. I hope you would find out that we have not failed the test. The word failed the test is the same word in our passage, disqualified. In other words, you better examine yourself, because if Jesus is really in you, then it'll show up in the way that you live. So when Paul says in our passage, and let me give you two more, just to give you a little bit more meat there. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 8. Just as Janes and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Almost every time the word disqualified used, it's about someone, whether their faith is real or not. Titus chapter 1 and verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable and disobedient, unfit, there's the word, disqualified for any good work. So again, there's people who profess this, but their life says the opposite. So they said their faith or their salvation is disqualified. It isn't real. It's basically counterfeit. It's a fake. So go back to our text and put that back into what we have as the definition. He says, unless I have preached to others, I would be, I'm going to give everybody else the gospel, but I don't run the race to demonstrate that I am a real Christian. He goes, I would be disqualified. He goes, wouldn't that be the craziest thing of all? So here's what he's going to say. You know what? You got to be careful. Not because you could lose your salvation, because you can never do that. Never. But here's what he says. How you run the race doesn't nullify the grace in your life. It verifies the grace in your life. In other words, I don't run to get saved, but if I am saved, I will run a certain way. Because how I run shows whether I am or am not a believer. It's demonstrated by the way that I live my life. Now, here's the key. That's important because you won't get chapter 10 if you don't get that. Because chapter 10 is about stories in the Old Testament about people who had all of these wonderful spiritual experiences. They had all the blessings like nobody else in the Old Testament had. In fact, it's a contrast between the generation of Moses in the wilderness and the generation of the Corinthians in Paul's day. Here's the contrast. Ready? Five. Mark them down with a pen if you have it. Circle it. Five times in verses one through four, he says all. Ready? All. Of our fathers, it says. See verse there? That our fathers were all under the cloud. That means the the cloud of fire that led them and guided them and directed them. Imagine every day when you get up, oh, there's God. And every time at night, it becomes a fire. There's God. Okay, we know where to turn left here. Why? Everywhere you go, God's always, the the cloudy pillar kept the, the chariots and all the Egyptians from attacking them when they crossed the Red Sea, which is the next one. All were under the cloud, all passed through the Red Sea. Imagine the waters opening up and two to three million people walking all night long in the dark. And you can see it by because the cloudy pillar lights it all up. So all night long they're walking through. the. And there is very few miracles in the Bible that can be as great as that. Notice, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses. 
All of the, the, all ate the same spiritual food, all ate the same spiritual drink. The spiritual food was the manna that God gave them every day for 48, 40 years. The spiritual drink he defines right afterwards, the rock that followed them. I don't have time to tell you tonight, some really cool rabbinic literature, which Paul must have known because it says the rock which followed them. And the theory is that there was this gigantic rock and wherever they went, it went with them. And in that rock that Moses hit, which disqualified him from the promised land, that rock gushed out like a river of water. So when you think the water coming out of the rock, do not think a puddle or like a hose. Talk, think about a river, right? Because you're talking two to three million people and all their animals. That's a lot. So imagine all 40 years long, manna every day, water from the rock, Moses as your leader, gone through the Red Sea, Cloudy pillar keeping you safe and guiding you everywhere you go. These are all the experiences, five of them. Now, the spiritual, gift, spiritual experience of the Corinthians, see, they had very much the same one. They had all this knowledge. They had spiritual gifts that God had given to them, all this revelation. Moses had given revelation to them. In our case, Jesus had given them revelation through the Holy Spirit, right? Now, they, they were baptized into Jesus, they had spiritual food and drink because they had the Lord's Supper and took the, the Lord's body, as it were, and the drink, which was his blood. I mean, you can't get any better spiritual food and drink than that. These two generations are parallel in the spiritual experiences they had. But listen, here's the thing. All of them had this. But look what the text says. Nevertheless, verse 5, with most of them, God wasn't pleased. Well, he just wasn't happy. No, this is way beyond not happy. For they were overthrown, and it means to be struck down and tossed. Here's the idea. For 38 years, people ages 20 and up, and we're talking hundreds of thousands of them. We are talking every day for about 38 years, people are, being, are dropping dead and their bodies strewn all over the desert. Every day was a living testimony of your rebellion and disobedience and unbelief in God's promises. Every day, people were dropping dead everywhere. And God says, listen to this, and this is, not, not a, this is almost an under-exaggeration. Most of them God was not pleased with. How many of them made it in? So let's say there were two million. How many made it in? So most of them, how about 99.9.9% of them didn't make it. Do you see what the warning is? Here's the warning to the Corinthian church, listen, and to us. You can live your whole life and have all these spiritual experiences. You can come to a church, they have all the sacraments, and you have the Lord's Supper, and you have services, and people preach the Bible, and you see people walking the aisle and getting saved, people being baptized, and you take the Lord's Supper, and you have Sunday school and small groups, and you have all these things, and the ministries, and the going missions. You can have all of these things. But hear me, a shared spiritual situation does not guarantee a shared spiritual salvation. It doesn't. Because most of these people didn't make it they didn't make it now listen i'm going to show you tonight even if this is the last thing we have to do not making it into the promised land for those reasons is bigger than just dying before you get there i'm going to show you what it means turn to hebrews chapter 3 there are a couple texts in the bible that elaborate on the exact truth that we're learning from this passage. 
Find it out for yourself as I read it. This is a quotation. If you want to read it in full text, it's Psalm 95. Hebrews 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. This is when they rebelled against God and wouldn't go in the promised land and had to live 40 years and they all died. And the, the very story, 1 Corinthians 10, relates to us. The day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go, listen to this, in their hearts. This wasn't just something on the outside. This is a serious inside condition. And they have not known my ways. They don't really know me. I swore in my wrath that they won't enter my rest. They're not going to make it to the promised land. What does that mean? Look at the warning he gives based on that story to the present believers, like he's doing to the Corinthians. Listen, like he's doing for us. Take care, brothers. Same word used in chapter 10 and verse 12 of Corinthians, where it says, take heed lest you fall. Beware. Same word. You better heed this warning. Lest there be in any of you that same evil, listen, unbelieving heart. The way that you run the race, the way you walk through the wilderness is an indicator of if you believe and have a heart for God. Leading you, Saint, watch, to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed, if indeed. See, how do you know you're really a Christian? Here's how I know I share in Christ. If we hold our original confidence firm to the end, he says. Ready? Notice chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear. Fear what? That we don't make it. Why, because you can lose it? No, because it wasn't real ever to begin with. And a life that lived in disobedience and rebellion and unbelief demonstrates it. Lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard didn't benefit them. You know why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For he who has believed entered that rest as he has said, I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Watch, verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints to a certain day. Today, in other words, hey, the, the final promised land wasn't Joshua. David quotes the story in Psalm 95, and it wasn't in his day. You know when the day is? Now, because Jesus has come. Verse 8. For as Joshua had given them rest, God would have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has rested from his works as God did. Please watch this verse. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same disobedience. See what he says back in our text? Therefore, if you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. Going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as we close tonight. Here's what he does in the last half of the passage. First half is five alls. The second half is five 
statements that start with a little word comparative as. Starting in verse 6, ready? There's two brackets, verse 6 and verse 11 say the same thing. Now these were given to us as examples. It says the exact same thing in verse 6 and it says the exact same thing in verse 11. You know why we have the Old Testament stories of how they rebelled and how they didn't believe and how they died in the wilderness and how they rebelled and the serpents and all those stories, you know why they're there? So that you won't do the same thing. We all know the power of a bad example. You ever had kids growing up and your little kid watches your older kid do things and then they think they can do them? You ever watch that? You ever have your kids stay over at someone else's house overnight and they go over there and they're friends with them and they're at their house long enough and they come back and they start getting sassy? You say, where did you get that? Well, that's how so-and-so does at their house. And you say, well, that'd be the last time you're going over there because I'm not letting you have that bad example. I've had kids come to school and they get sent to the office. Little teeny kids. I'm talking like first graders. And they come in and I read the slip. Here's a discipline slip and it says, they said such and such a word, and I go, what? You're in first grade. How in the world do you know what that means? So I asked him, I said, do you know what this means? No. I said, why would you say that? That's what my mom says when she gets angry. <laughs> power of a bad example, right? Here's what, here's what the, this says. Ready? These things were written for our example that we should not do. See this phrase? Circle them all. Verse 6. Don't desire evil as they did. See it? As they did. Verse 7. Don't be idolaters, blah, 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 to the end. It says, don't be as some of them were, verse 7. Verse 8. As some of them did, verse 9. As some of them did, verse 10. As some of them did, see it? Why do we have these stories? Here's what Paul would say theologically. Those stories were written in there so you wouldn't follow bad examples. That you wouldn't think that coming to church and having all the Bible stories and seeing the ministry and taking communion and being baptized is all there is to being a Christian. If you think that's it, you're wrong. He says it's more than that. It's a life that demonstrates it. A life of belief that results in obedience that's worked out in your life. He says and all these spiritual experiences don't mean a thing if there's no reality to it in your life. That's why he says... And now it makes sense, right? Verse 12, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands. If you think that because you have all this Bible knowledge and you've had all these Bible experiences, that that guarantees that you're a believer on that alone, you'd be wrong because you might fall. Here's the Corinthians that if you looked at them, they had every spiritual gift. And it seems like they were filled with the Spirit, but they weren't. They weren't. Some of them weren't. And Paul says this, but we have a God who will not allow you to be tested. In other words, you're not going to have these idolatrous testings and temptations put on you. God will make the way of escape. He will say, God says, in every one of those situations, if you will obey my word, this isn't some miraculous, supernatural thing that God... No, you know what the way is? How did, why did they go astray? Because they didn't believe his word and do it. You know what the way of escape is? Believing what God says and doing it, that's the way of escape. He says you'll be able to endure it. Listen to what he said. He didn't say you'd be able to escape it. Endure it. In other words, it's not going away, but you can handle it. He says it's common to man. In other words, it's unique. There's not any test that you face in the 21st century, by the way, that hasn't been around forever. 
So please don't use, Paul would say, the fact that somehow your boat and your pressures and your circumstances are unique. They are not. God's faithfulness, listen to this, God's faithfulness to you is not in a special measure because of the situation you're in, but because of the God that he is. Your situation isn't special, it's common. And that's a good thing because if it was more difficult and God had a problem with that, you'd be in trouble. But the truth is, is it's not about how hard your circumstance it is, it's how faithful your God is. God is faithful, he is in sovereign control, even when you don't feel like you are. Right? So he's in control, and here's what he says. I won't allow you to be tempted more than you can actually endure. In other words, that you can last it out. What did Paul say in Hebrews? That those who hold on to fast to their faith, firm to the end. People who are Christians live out their obedience, not for a little while, but faithfully, not perfectly, patternly, he says. So God's job in this testing to keep you from idolatry is that he's faithful. He won't abandon you. He's going to make it, put it in your heart and work with you so that you can be obedient. What's your job? Ready? Bookends. Flee, verse 14, idolatry. Somehow, sometimes he gives you the strength to endure it. And you know what other times he gives you to do? He gives you the chance to run away from it. So if you say, Pastor Walker, my idolatry is I love shopping and spending all my money at the mall. And I don't know why I go there. And every time I go there, I just fall. I keep asking God, please help me when I'm at the mall. You know what God says? Run. Don't go to the mall. Really? Don't go. You know, I look at all the wrong things from Pastor Walker on the internet. Stop looking at the internet. Flee. Run from it. The only other time in 1 Corinthians the word flee is used, flee sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 6.18. Two other times, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, he tells people to flee. I did a youth pastor message when I was about 22, and I, my question was, do you have fleas? In other words, do you have flea, all the fleas of the Bible? Do you? Because God's faithful, but that doesn't mean you don't run. G. Campbell Morgan, 19th century famous English pastor, said this, that some way, sometimes God's way of escape is the king's highway and a good pair of sandals. And that's what he asked for you to do. And maybe you're on the ro- wrong road today. And God brought you here to say this. Ready? Hear me. Run. Run. Joseph could have let himself get caught in idolatry Sexual immorality, which he should have... But you know what he did when she grabbed him by the coat? He didn't stay to argue. He didn't endure and said, listen, I can handle this. You know what he did? He ran. He ran. See, some of you may be on the verge of a serious downward slope into idolatry. You know why? Because you think you can handle it. You think you can stand. Beware. You might be on the verge of falling. And perhaps God brought you here tonight for this one reason. You know what he wants to say? Run. Run from idolatry. Run from the things that could destroy your soul. Those are God's words, not mine. Idolatry and the danger of disqualification is a real, real danger. And tonight, because you are a member here at Faith Baptist Church, doesn't make you immune to it. You better learn to run because God is faithful. Let's pray. Father, help us. I don't know tonight 
who we're all talking to, but you do. Perhaps tonight someone on Slippery Slope tonight would be on the verge of idolatry, some serious, destructive idolatry. And perhaps tonight they just need to hear what you said. You are a faithful God. And sometimes we can't get away from some of the things that we have to endure, but a lot of times the answer is, here's the way to escape. Run. I pray we'd flee it tonight and that we'd run from it to you. Help us to do that the more, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.